and Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we'll be discussing China and North Korea. What is China's relationship with North Korea, and to what extent is North Korea influenced or constrained by China? To what extent can the United States still work with China on North Korea? To discuss this and more is Dr. Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS. He is also a professor of government and holds the Dia Song KF Chair in the Department of Government and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. In July 2019, he was appointed Vice Dean for Faculty and Graduate Affairs in SFS. From 2004 to 2007, Dr. Cha was the Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He is the author of five books and is writing a new book on Korean unification. Victor, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So, Victor, this is our first podcast of the year for China Power, where we're covering new material, and we wanted to focus on a topic of high importance. As you know, in 2022, there was significant global attention on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that meant globally and for the Indo-Pacific. There was also a lot of attention on Taiwan. Particularly before and after then Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island, our podcast also covered a number of internal developments in China, including the 20th Party Congress. One area that we didn't focus enough on was North Korea and its growing provocative activities. Victor, as you look at North Korea, what did you find most striking, new, or unprecedented in terms of North Korean activities in 2022? Was there anything that changed? Thanks, uh, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be on the China Power podcast. I've been listening to it for quite some time.、Uh, in terms of this question,、um, I would say there's a lot that's changed, but there's a lot that stayed the same. In terms of what's changed, clearly the testing has changed. In the sense that in 2022 we saw, I don't know, we saw almost 80 or more, depending on how you count these things. You count them as individual missile tests or missile events. 80 or more. Tests by North Korea、uh, after the first year of the Biden administration, in which they did very little. But just to give you a sense of the scale, this is four times the number of tests they did during the year of fire and fury with Donald Trump in 2017. So the testing is, you know, that in that in a sense that's the same. But what's different has been the pace. The second is the quality of what they're testing. They are moving steadily towards their goal, which is a solid fuel propellant mobile. Launch capacity across their entire portfolio of missiles. Whether you're talking about short-range ballistic missiles or intercontinental ballistic missiles, they've also talked more about tactical nuclear weapons lately. So not just these big bombs that they've been testing in this mountain in North Korea, but smaller、uh, tactical nuclear devices. And then the newest thing is following on or taking a cue from Putin and Ukraine. They've talked more openly about a first-use doctrine with regard to their nuclear weapons, as a really as a way to deny access to the peninsula if there were a contingency. And Victor, from your perspective, what, what's driving these changes in North Korean behavior? You mentioned some of them, like for example, learning from Russia's lessons learned from Ukraine. But aside from that, are there other factors that's causing North Korea to be much more provocative in 2022 than before? I mean, as you can imagine, it's you know when we talk about what's driving North Korean behavior, it's a bit of a black box, and we can come up with many different、uh, possible explanations. I always、um, stick to 
the rule of Occam's razor, something we all learned about in grad school, which is that the best answer is often the simplest one. And that is that what's driving this is that they want to acquire these capabilities. I mean, that's they want to have the full range of nuclear capabilities, and that's what's driving this. They've telegraphed this in their New Year's speeches, uh, in particular the New Year's speech in 2021, where Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, laid out very clearly all of the things that he was seeking, whether it was uh, everything from solid fuel, short-range mobile-launched capabilities, ballistic missiles, to UAVs, to tactical nuclear weapons, to ICBMs. And so that's what's driving this. It's part of a plan and they're methodically moving along. I think the war in Europe certainly has increased uncertainty in the external environment for all countries, not just uh, U.S. allies and partners, but even countries like North Korea. And that may have something to do with this, although one could make a very credible argument that North Korea was pursuing these capabilities long before the war in Ukraine. And then third, and not insignificantly, and something I'm sure we will talk about later, is they feel like they're in a good place with China and Russia when it comes to particularly the UN Security Council, where they don't expect China and Russia to support anything by the West and the US in the UN Security Council against North Korea. That may not be what drives it, but they see an opportunity in that space. Can I just follow up a little bit on in terms of North Korea's plans moving forward? Is there a timeline by which North Korea wants to acquire all these capabilities, or is it broadly during Kim Jong-un's current tenure? I mean, certainly during Kim Jong-un's tenure. I can't recall specifically if they've laid out a timeline in terms of date, um, but the, what struck most analysts was the, this New Year's speech in 2021, where there's a paragraph in the speech where it's very technical. He sort of lists, enumerates all the things that he are seeking in terms of capabilities. You know, often when we see North Korean propaganda or speeches, we don't read them, we don't take them seriously. But whenever they talk about their nuclear capabilities, we should take it seriously because they do exactly what they say. And that was 2021. We're now in 2023. And they have done basically everything they've said in that. So that's a period of two years, um, and that's a pretty ambitious schedule that they've followed. And they could be failing along the lines, things we don't see, but they appear to be succeeding. Most recently with a, uh, a, a rocket engine test of what we believe is a solid fuel ICBM engine, right, which is one of the last things that they listed in terms of things that they were after. Last meaning the most ambitious thing that they were after. That was there with tactical nuclear weapons. So they seem to have accomplished many of the things that they've talked about within a period of two years. Thank you. So as you kind of alluded to earlier, I wanted to transition to talk broadly about China's relationship with both North Korea, but also briefly about with China's relationship with South Korea and how that impacts Pyongyang's decision making. So maybe as a little bit of background, how would you characterize North Korea's relationship with China, both historically as well as in the last year or so? So historically, it's always been described famously as a relationship as close as lips and teeth, right, is the sort of metaphor that's always been used. Or the other is for a relationship forged in blood, uh, going back to Chinese support of North Korea, basically, you know, saving North Korea from the U.S. rollback policy during the Korean War. So there's, you know, there's that very deep tie based on that certainly felt on the North Korean side, even though they never express it in their official history, right? They never talk about 
the Korean War, China's role in the Korean War in their official history. They say it was all done. It was all done by the North Koreans. But they also want to portray this very, you know, this sort of ideological brotherhood, sisterhood relationship. I remember when we were doing six party talks, uh, the North Koreans would be constantly worried that the Chinese were going to sell them out in a deal with the Americans at the six party talks. But anytime it was time to take a picture, they would scramble to be the party closest to the Chinese. Stay, you know, standing as close as they could to the Chinese holding hands and things. And so that's certainly the optic they want to portray. But I think when you pull back the veneer, it's not a very good relationship at all uh, these days. And I've described it more as akin not to ideological brothers and sisters, but more like a mutual hostage relationship in the sense that, you know, China very clearly is it, it wants to preserve a buffer on the Korean Peninsula in North Korea to prevent a U.S. military ally and or a U.S. military presence directly on their border. Um, and so for that reason, they have to countenance all the stuff that North Korea does, testing, you know, terrorist activity, cyber activity, all these sorts of things. Um, they have to countenance all this because, you know, they don't want pressure on the North Korean regime. They don't want a brittle regime to, to collapse, to crack. And so they continue to support it every time North Korea does something bad. Uh, China's name gets dragged through the mud because everybody says, China, you know, why did you let this happen? And they don't like any of that. But so in a sense, China despises North Korea, but it's the only North Korea that they have. So they're kind of stuck with it. And the same thing is true for North Korean views of China. North Korea doesn't like that China since 2009 has been extracting minerals out of the northern part of the Korean Peninsula at probably below market prices. They don't like that China basically treats them like their poorest province, but they need the Chinese lifeline. And so they're not happy with China, but they're the only China they got. So it, it's very much of a mutual hostage relationship. I think that continues to this day, uh, that the, the two don't have a lot of love for each other at all, but they do need each other. And so they're stuck with each other. So, Victor, you mentioned earlier that you think that North Korea believes that it's in a better place with China and Russia now. Um, than, say, two years ago or during what you mentioned, the uh, fire and fury phase of the Trump administration. And it seemed like you were suggesting that what got North Korea to this better place was, was potentially the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the realignments that China and Russia have had. But could you just expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think there, there are two dynamics. One, of course, is the change in the in the U.S.-China relationship, you know, for certainly during a good part of the Obama administration and then during the Bush administration before that, it was well accepted that the strategy with regard to North Korea was uh, to work with China based on the presumption that the U.S. and China both had a shared interest in the nuclear-free Korean Peninsula and that there were many issues that the U.S. and China could not agree on, but this was one that they could agree on and that they would work together to do that. You know, the change in, in the tenor of U.S.-China relations has obviously changed the situation. And, you know, North Korea sees it as an opportunity. For North Korea, uh, they always see an opportunity when U.S.-China relations are bad or when U.S.-Russia relations are bad. They see that as an opportunity to tighten their alliance relationships with these two former Cold War patrons. In many ways, it's a mirror image of South Korea. When U.S.-China relations are bad, South Korea worries about entrapment. When U.S.-Russia relations are bad, South Korea worries about entrapment. And that's sort of where we are now. North Korea sees an opportunity and South Korea 
fears entrapment. And, you know, the obverse is true, too. When U.S.-China relations are good, South Korea sees a real opportunity there. They see their role as a middle, uh, as a middle power, as bridging, you know, between the United States and China as sort of being the bridge between like, developed country and developing country, all those sorts of things. So they see a real opportunity. And when U.S.-China relations are good, North Korea is uh, deeply, deeply fearful of abandonment, like deeply concerned about abandonment. And not, you know, incidentally, there, there's a similar dynamic on the Chinese side. As you remember well, Xi Jinping, when he came into power, refused to meet with Kim Jong-un, refused to meet with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. But once Trump started doing his diplomacy with North Korea, Xi Jinping then did five summit meetings with the North Korean leader. So, you know, there is sort of this, you know, a lot of it is driven by, uh, it, I mean, it's hard for the two Koreas to create these situations. But when these situations emerge between the United States and China or between the United States and Russia, uh, the two Koreas have really sort of opposite reactions to them. And, you know, right now, clearly we're in a period where China, North Korea sees opportunity and South Korea worries about entrapment. In terms of the opportunity that North Korea sees, have you actually seen that play out with respect to China actually being much more willing to turn a blind eye towards North Korea or China in some ways providing more support to North Korea? In other words, is the opportunity actually there? So I think, yes, for North Korea, the opportunities there are sort of optically, rhetorically. The complicating factor is still the lockdown, the COVID lockdown in North Korea, and until recently, the COVID lockdown in China. This was you know, something that worried the North Koreans a lot. As many people know, North Korea has a broken health infrastructure. They have no vaccine base in the country. They have a malnourished population with lots of comorbidity deathly afraid of any sort of pandemics, whether it was Ebola, MERS, SARS, deathly, deathly afraid. And so they locked down in January 2020. And so um, there's not a lot that has been going across the border as would normally be the case. You know, normally in, in, in a normal situation, China is 90% of North Korea's imports. You know, that's clearly not the case now because of, of the lockdown. Having said that, I think you know, they still see China as the primary source for them materially, uh, whether that comes across the border and then is put in these um, quarantine facilities that we found with satellite imagery up on the border uh, at where they sit there for like three weeks before they bring it into the country, whether it's ship to ship transfers of uh, things that's possible. So there's still a material relationship there that the North Koreans need very badly especially after being locked down for, almost, for three years now. The, the second is in terms of sanctions, obviously they don't want China to comply with UN sanctions. And they certainly don't want China to comply with or to sponsor or to vote for new UN Security Council sanctions. And the North Koreans have been successful in that. Last May, uh, China did not support a new, new UN Security Council resolution one of the things it would have targeted is uh, North Korean cyber activity, and China did not support that. And then lastly, they don't want Chinese public castigation of North Korea, and, and they've achieved that too. So, so I think from a North Korean perspective, um, uh, these, these things work to their advantage. You can speak better to I as to why China does those things, but I think they, they uh, also see a tightening uh, the relationship with North Korea in the current geostrategic situation. Victor, when you talk about North Korea and China's relations, 
are there areas that you think North Korea might be either at least giving China advance notice or at least socializing with China before engaging in those types of behavior? So, for example, last year's unprecedented missile activity. Do you think North Korea may have let China know beforehand or was there some form of communication there? You know, so I think that in the past, by the past, I mean pre-Kim Jong-un, there was that practice of socializing or advance notice to to China. I don't think that's happening under Kim Jong-un. Certainly, if you're doing 80 uh, missile tests in a year, I don't think that there's advanced consultation going on with China. And, you know, I think you know, I think a big moment for the North Koreans historically was when China normalized relations with South Korea in 1992. I think that's when North Korea felt deeply acute abandonment. Kim Jong-il, the leader of North Korea, did not go to did not go to China for the rest of the decade, as you will probably remember, and only only started going to to China again in in 2000, so 8 years later. And I think that really sort of changed the overall tenor of China-DPRK relations and where the North Koreans have become less trustworthy and not willing to take Chinese advice. So I think there's, um, I could be wrong, but I think there's less consultation now than before. Uh, and especially as these these weapons programs succeed, I think North Korea will, will less and less listen to China. So that leads to another related question I have, which is trying to understand the extent of Beijing's influence over Pyongyang. I think, um, as you mentioned, perhaps on these activities that North Korea is trying to make more routine, we probably won't see as much Chinese influence, particularly when, when you're talking about weapons development. But when we are in either a crisis situation or where we're talking about nuclear weapon tests, do you think there's still at least some room for China to influence North Korea's behavior? Yeah, you know, it's a good question and it's not an easy one to answer. I think so from a U.S. perspective, the answer would be yes, because uh, if anything, China can put a lot of economic pressure on North Korea. The problem with that argument is I think it's been proven to be incorrect because of the COVID lockdown. For three years now, North Korea has basically cut off trade with China. I mean, I say partially jokingly, but partially seriously, uh, that the past three years have been the sanctions regime on North Korea that John Bolton would have dreamed of, right? That this sort of really sort of maximum pressure sanctions to the point where North Korea was even cracking down on its own smuggling networks with China to avoid COVID coming into the country. And so, so if, if, if the argument is China's still influential because it can put economic pressure on North Korea, I just don't know if that really can be is proven by what we've seen because it's been three years and the regime is still there. Nobody would have, nobody inside or outside the U.S. government would, would, have, told, would have told you that North Korea could survive a three-year border lockdown with China. Nobody, right? And yet, they, yet they've done that. But arguably, the other place where China could play a role on a nuclear test is with regard to its position in the U.N. Security Council. If it were to convey to the North Koreans, look, if you do a nuclear test, we're going to support a resolution in the U.N. Security Council, that, you know, that is something that North Korea can do, has done, and can, can do again. But then again, it's Kim Jong-un. So whether he cares about that or not, you know, he may not. He may not care about that. It's through these past UN Security Council resolutions that China have supported that we've seen the most comprehensive sanctions that have been placed on North Korea, particularly the, the ones in 2016 and 2017. Those were the sanctions that Kim Jong-un wanted lifted when he met with Trump in Hanoi in February of 2019. 
China signed on to those. But at this point, if they threatened, you know, more UN Security Council sanctions and resolutions, you know, would it really matter for the North Koreans? It's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, they've been through really the worst of it now. If you combine the 2016 and 2017 sectoral sanctions with the three-year COVID lockdown, and they've still managed to survive all that, how well, we don't know, but they've still managed to survive all that. It's hard to really think about what other pressure you could put on the regime that would be tougher than that. So it sounds like what you're saying, Victor, is not only does the United States international community have very little leverage over North Korea, but also China, because of all everything you mentioned, the sanctions and the COVID lockdown, probably has a lot less influence on North Korea than some scholars might still think that China could have. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I think that people who think that it's interesting because I think that people who think that China has still has influence on North Korea are also the people who want to see the U.S. and China cooperate on something. Right. And that's something being being North Korea. So this notion that there is sort of this island of common interests on the Korean Peninsula that the two countries can engage in. And I'm sympathetic to that argument, too. I mean, when I worked in government, that was essentially the strategy when we were doing six party talks. But at least to me right now, empirically, it just hasn't been proven that that sort of pressure can change them because we've seen the pressure exercised not through China, but through external factors, COVID, other things. In addition to that, you know, as you know well, the current environment between the United States and China really doesn't make it conducive to to, to having that discussion. So right now, I'm quite pessimistic that um, China exercises any tools. The only exception would be, and we don't have a window on this. The only exception would be whatever uh, fuel and food shipments are going to North Korea from China. We just uh, we just have no in the open source. We just have no visibility into that. Um, and so that might be one area. But then again, remember, as we said earlier, the Chinese don't want, they may not like the North Koreans, but they don't want them to collapse. And if cutting off what remains of their food assistance and energy assistance is the lever they're going to use, then they're then they're basically leveraging collapse of the regime, which is not in China's interest. Do you see any way in which China could leverage its relationship with the ROK to impact Pyongyang or North Korea? Or does it always go the opposite way? Like you said, when China normalized relations with the ROK, it caused North Korea to shelve visits to China for eight years. Is there any way in which more Chinese efforts to improve or deepen relations with the ROK could limit North Korea's behavior? So I think right now the Chinese in terms of South Korea are not focused on playing a South Korea card to shape relations with North Korea. They're playing a South Korea card because they're worried about South Korea's position right now under this new UN government growing closer and closer to the United States and closer and closer to Japan. So I think that's their main preoccupation now. So I think Yes, they are interested in, in pursuing South Korea, but for their own interests, not for their North Korea policy. The Yun government has not, you know, it's been very clear about its intentions on Japan. It's been very clear about its intentions on the United States and on North Korea. It has not been very clear on its intentions with regard to China. But there is a shift taking place, and it's almost as if by stealth, like no public speeches, no statements but quietly doing more with Japan, more with the United States, more trilaterally. And the Chinese see this. On the surface, they talk about how they continue to have a good relationship with South Korea, but they see what's happening 
And, you know, and quietly now they're reaching out to the South Koreans about doing more track two, track 1.5, because they're worried about the direction in which South Korea is going. And the UN government has, you know, they've done this in a way that where they have made no big public statements about a change in policy towards China that can be targeted either by the Chinese or by the domestic opposition, but then quietly are just doing a bunch of things with the United States and Japan that the Chinese are noticing and are worried about. So, so to get back to the earlier point, I think, yes, the, the Chinese focus on South Korea today is, is real, but it's not for reasons related to North Korea. It's for reasons related to China's own interests. Got it. Thank you. So one other question on North Korea before I move more towards questions on asking about what North Korea could do next, as well as U.S. policy on North Korea. So we've talked a bit about Chinese influence on North Korea, the limits of that influence. But I want you to maybe potentially look at another potential possibility, which is, do you see in the future that China could deepen its relationship with North Korea, significantly improve relations? I've seen some speculation by South Korean scholars that North Korea offered to hold its first joint military exercise with China. I don't know if it's true or not. But I think there's some speculation, perhaps, that either from one side or both sides, there may be interest in deepening that relationship moving forward. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't. I, I think certainly rhetorically, they'll deepen the relationship. They already have. And it wouldn't surprise me if they did a token exercise or two just to respond to all of the bilateral and trilateral exercising on the U.S. side which around the Korean Peninsula will only increase, right? There's only going to be a higher tempo of exercising, certainly more than we saw, you know, three or four years ago, where, where the exercising almost came to a halt on the Korean Peninsula. So, so I think that, the, that we, might, we may see more of that. And like I said, I think the suitor in all this will be the North Koreans. The North Koreans will be constantly approaching the Chinese about, you know, more things that they can do together because, as we said earlier, the framework is such that they see an opportunity when they see tension between the U.S. and China or tension between the U.S. and Russia, for that matter. They, the North Koreans are going to try to move into that space and try to squeeze as much out of that tensions to consolidate ties with Beijing and Moscow. So it would not surprise me if we see more proposals on the, on the North Korean side. Whether the Chinese will accept those things, I don't know. You could probably answer that better than I, Bonnie. But, you know, I think that, you know, they will do so tactically. But I don't think it would be part of a broader strategic tightening because I don't think they they get a lot out of exercising with North Korea. Yeah, on your point, I think uh, China has already seen the uh, potential costs of tightening its relationship with Russia, as Russia has been incredibly aggressive and waged a war in Ukraine. So it would be a little odd if China also tried to significantly tighten its relationship with North Korea as it becomes incredibly, as it continues its aggression also in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think also to that point, I, to your early, that point, and with regard to your earlier question, you know, if, if China's concern right now is not to let the South Koreans drift too far in the direction of the United States, if they tighten their relationship with North Korea, that's going to undermine the policy objective with regard to South Korea. So, A lot of different uh, objectives that China has to balance. So when you look at um, what's next for North Korea, particularly in the next couple of months or next year, what types of activities do you expect from North Korea? So more missile tests, possibly a nuclear test in the horizon, anything beyond that? So, you know, again, according to their statements, they want to have a solid propellant mobile ICBM. And so they will do things to 
uh, testing and things to try to achieve that capability. They have a liquid fueled one, but they don't have a solid propellant one. I think so. They're they're I think they're very active in terms of that so-called seventh nuclear test. Everybody's been waiting for it now for the past half year. You know that's something certainly that they would do. Some have believed that it could it may not be a single test, but it could be a series of ver- smaller tactical nuclear weapons tests that won't, you know, register on the Richter scale like some of the other testing they've done they've done in the past. And then the third constant that I think will occur, we won't see it as clearly, but it will continue to happen, is uh, their increased cyber activities. They have been ramping up their cyber activities. You know, initially it was largely petty theft it, uh, to, to, you know, rob ATMs and rob banks. But the latest twist in this is that uh, is the focus on cryptocurrency. And according to a statement by the White House, very unusual statement by the White House last April, that this uh, cryptocurrency heists are being cashed out and used to finance uh, the weapons program. I think it was Newberger, Deputy National Security Advisor Newberger, said this publicly in April that they are converting the cryptocurrency into Chinese renminbi. Uh, and that they're using it to finance the weapons program, which is a very unusual sort of statement by the the U.S. government. But I think they would not be making that statement unless they thought the activity was significant and that they're trying to curb that. So I think that, you know, those are kind of three areas where I expect there'll be a lot of activity. And as North Korea increases its activity in all three areas, we'll probably, the United States and our allies and partners will likely have to respond in some way or form. And what we saw last year was that President Biden even told President Xi that if North Korea continues on its weapons development, there will be enhanced U.S. military presence. Now, grouping that with the 70th anniversary of the U.S. ROK alliance, you mentioned that we should expect to see more U.S. bilateral and trilateral activities in the region. Do you think any of these activities could cause a potential reaction from North Korea or China or both? So I think we'll we'll certainly see a lot more bilateral and trilateral exercising between the U.S. and Korea, U.S. and Japan, U.S. Korea and Japan. That's to be expected. Everything from maritime safety to missile defense. You know, I think we'll see that, and some of that will be marginal. Some of it will be old stuff. Some will be marginal, marginally new stuff. Where I think we could see bigger changes is in terms of discussions of nuclear deterrence, where I think the administration is signaling that they are planning for or planning to increase the words that Jake Sullivan used at our conference in Korea in December was increased cooperative decision making on sensitive nuclear issues, which to me is sort of code for at least partially opening the door to nuclear planning discussions with Korea and Japan, something they've traditionally been outside of. They've not been a part of that. It's not nuclear sharing, certainly, but I think it's more uh, bringing the Koreans and the Japanese into how we do, how we think about nuclear weapons and contingencies and nuclear planning. So that would be a very big and new step for both alliances. And, you know, China certainly won't like that. North Korea won't like it. uh, And China certainly won't like it. The other thing is that, you know, the the government in South Korea spoke during the campaign about uh, very openly about more missile defense on the Korean peninsula, something that has been very sensitive for China. At one point, the South Korean president said he wanted another THAAD battery 
on the Korean Peninsula. This one's South Korean owned, so South Korean purchased that battery to protect the city of Seoul. And he also talked about early deployment of Israel's Iron Dome system in in Korea. So those things haven't come up recently for a variety of different reasons. I don't think they've come up recently, but I think the South Korean president can't help but consider more uh, missile defense capability or cooperation uh, with the United States and conceivably Japan too, given the pace of North Korean testing and development of their missiles. So on the three different types of military activities that you mentioned, just looking at the middle one where you uh, discussed that Jake Sullivan had mentioned the possibility, partially opening the door to nuclear planning discussions with the ROK in Japan. Do you think that could potentially cause North Korea to try to accelerate its own nuclear program? And you had mentioned possibility that maybe North Korea's seventh nuclear test might not be a single one, right? It might be multiple tactical nuclear tests. Would that change that calculations to make it less smaller tests, but larger tests? I'm just trying to play out how we might see the regional reactions to some of those activities. So again, I mean, so part of this goes back to the earlier discussion we had about what's driving this behavior. You know, I'm of the view that North Korea wants this, that like this isn't, this is, it's not being driven in reaction to things that the United States and its allies are doing. Uh, that might affect the timing, but it doesn't affect the overall goal, which is to achieve, right, this solid fuel propellant, mobile-based ICBM, tactical nuclear warheads, countermeasures on those missiles, all these sorts of things. And I think they're headed in that direction. And if there is trilateral nuclear planning that's taking place among the allies, you know, that might uh, that might affect the timing of what they do, but it's not going to it's not going to change the the direction of what they're doing negatively or positively, I think, because, you know, they're set on getting from point A to point B. What the U.S. and its allies and partners do is not going to divert them from that course at all. So in that sense, you know, I, I am certainly of the view and I've written on it that I don't think U.S. are okay military exercises. I don't think those things are provocative in quotation marks in the sense that they create provocations from North Korea. You know, we've done an empirical study to show that actually there is, even though North Korea screams and cries a lot whenever we do those exercises, that it doesn't actually affect the state of relations pre and post exercise. So it has actually a null effect on the diplomatic relationship, doesn't escalate, doesn't de-escalate. So I think that, you know, these allies and partners they need to do what they need to do to protect themselves in a changing and uncertain environment, not worry so much how the North Koreans are going to respond because they're going to do whatever they want to do, whether it's a seventh nuclear test or a Hwasong-17, they're going to do it anyway. So, um, so you just got to do what you have to do. The press and others may say, oh, look, you created that seventh nuclear test. But that, the reality is that that's not true. The reality is, is that North Korea was planning on doing that anyway. It's part of the logic of your argument also that North Korea is already trying to move as fast as possible on weapons development as well as nuclear capabilities. So even if it is that it doesn't like what's happening, it can't actually go any faster. So even if it views our activities as problematic, they actually don't have the bandwidth to accelerate. Yeah, I mean that's a good that's a that's a good point. I, I mean that could be that could very well be true. I don't know if they could go faster. We like to believe that the UN Security Council sanctions 
have slowed their development, but it's kind of hard to make that argument these days. <laughs> um, it, you know, maybe it's slowed it by a week or something, but it's hard to make the argument that it's slowed it by decades, certainly. So, uh, yes, it could very well be that it's hard to influence or change their behavior to move faster than they're already moving. <laughs> And so, Victor, I'd like to close off by going back to the question that we've touched on a bit before, but really maybe focusing on a bit more sharply. And that is, to what extent do you think it's actually possible for the United States and the international community to work with China on curbing North Korea's provocative behavior? I think earlier you said you didn't really think it was China has that much influence and you also said that North Korea is very much playing a suitor to try to win more support from China as much as possible. But do you think at the very basic level that China and the United States still share some bottom lines for North Korea, such as denuclearization? Or do you think that's not even clear anymore from your perspective? So I think the only, I mean, I, I hate to be sound like such a curmudgeon, but I mean, so I think this notion that uh, China and the U.S. share similar interest in a nuclear-free Korean Peninsula is just not true. I don't. I don't think that's true anymore. I think the U.S. may have believed that, but I think Chinese actions up until now um, show that they are not motivated at all to do anything about North Korea, out of a concern about proliferation on the peninsula. The only thing they're interested in doing with regard to North Korea today is waving it in the face of the United States and saying, so you see, this is what happens if you don't work with us, right? It's transactional in the sense that uh, Wang Yi even said it. Wang Yi said it very openly that because the relationship between the United States and China is so bad, why should we help the United States on North Korea? So that's a transactional response, and it doesn't speak to the notion that Chinese has, China has interests that are threatened by North Korea's proliferation on, on the peninsula. So I think that just doesn't exist anymore. I think the United States do and China do share an interest in averting a conflict on the peninsula. I think that's something that they do share an interest in. And I would imagine if North Korea did something to South Korea and South Korea responded or over-responded, that uh, both the United States and China would want to work quickly to sort of prevent any sort of escalation of hostilities on the peninsula. So I think they share a common interest in that regard. If China really registered shaping North Korea behavior as a top priority for China, one conceivable way they could do that would be to actually start having a dialogue with the United States on, on North Korea. Because if anything more than China sanctioning North Korea if the North Koreans see the Chinese talking to the Americans about the Korean Peninsula, that raises acute fears of abandonment in North Korea, constantly worried about being sold down the river by the great powers. And that might be the only sort of way in which China could influence it, but that would require China to see shaping North Korean behavior as one of their top priorities, so much so that it would, uh, it would cause them to seek out the United States. But you and I, like, we don't see that happening right now, right? I mean, it's not, as we started out this podcast, it's not a high priority now for anybody. And that, that is actually quite dangerous. One last question, and then we'll wrap it up here. So does that mean then if North Korea does engage in a seventh nuclear test, you don't actually expect too much reaction from the Chinese side in terms of willingness to impose additional sanctions or anything like that? 
I think, and I'm, I'm, this is not based on any inside information, that when Biden and Xi talked about North Korea, I think they talked about this. And, you know, I think China doesn't want to see another nuclear test on the peninsula. And it would be great. I don't know if they did, but it would be great if China communicated that to North Korea uh, with the veil threat that if you do, you know, we we didn't sign on to the U.N. Security Council resolution in May, but we w- may sign on to one if you do a seventh nuclear test. I, I mean, that's what I would like to see happen. You know, I just don't know if that is in the cards right now. I just don't know if that is something that the Chinese are willing to do. Because as I said earlier, I think they see this as in very transactional terms, almost as a quid pro quo for the U.S. taking its sort of foot off the accelerator in terms of the competition strategy with China. So I would like to believe that the United States and China share a common interest in avoiding a nuclear test on the Korean Peninsula, a seventh nuclear test, and that they would work together for that purpose and a coordinated strategy. But I'm not I'm not hopeful that that's going to that's going to happen. So thank you, Victor. A lot to think about. But at least we share common interest to avert conflict on the Korean Peninsula. We can look forward to that. Thank you, Victor, very much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. 